Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks do something. (laughs) It started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. (laughs) Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it works. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Technique. Yes, this is a podcast where we speak to artists about technology. I'm Sam Fry, and today's episode is an interview by Richard F. Adams with Paul Carney. Paul is a former teacher who has taught in primary and secondary schools. He's now a consultant who advises schools around the world. Paul is a big advocate of teaching creative skills and last year published a new book called Drawing for Science, Invention and Discovery, even if you can't draw. As you may have gathered from previous episodes, Richard also has a teaching background, so the pair of them talk about arts teaching, education and challenges that schools face today where they need to prioritise their efforts, often at the expense of encouraging the creativity of students. I should say that this episode was recorded on Skype, so you may notice that the audio quality is not always the strongest. However, I think you'll find that after a few minutes, your ears will adjust to the sound. And it's worth it to hear some really insightful thoughts about creativity and education today. So, here we go. I will hand you over to Paul Carney and Richard F. Adams, starting with Paul explaining his background as a teacher. Hello, I'm Paul Carney. I'm a 56-year-old teacher, rather ex-teacher. I taught until 2014-15. I was a head of department in a secondary school in the northeast in a very deprived area and transformed that into a successful department. Then I went on a bit of a kind of journey up the northeast coast and ended up teaching primary art and design for five years in a school in Newcastle in a very affluent part of Newcastle and I really enjoyed that so I kind of I've also done sixth form so I have kind of a lot of experience across the board of educational teaching so I came to teaching late I was a mature student so I came to teaching at the age of 33 and I've done a lot of other I've done a lot of other stuff from sales work to work in as a steeplejack I worked in a current factory washing currents I've been pretty much poor most of my life. That's that's always a good place to start. <laughs> but where did this thing about art and science come from? That's a good question, and I think it kind of evolved rather than it came from a, a specific time and place. When I was at school, I very much had the opinion that science and art were compartmentalised because that's the way it was taught. And I remember being very baffled by science at school. I remember thinking that I couldn't believe what they were telling me was true. 
even when I watched it happen, like I remember these iron filing kind of magnet lines appearing on a piece of paper, and I still didn't think that was true. It, it, I, I can't explain why it just seemed impossible belief that science was past me, beyond me, that I wasn't intelligent enough for it. All those kind of stereotypical misconceptions. And then, just off the top of my head, I, be- I guess they began to change when I had a son. And he was an eternally questioning and fascinated child. And I used to explain things to him. And then we used to sit and watch documentaries and look at the world and talk about things. And I began to realise that my artistic experience and the, the scientific curiosity he had were the same thing. And I began to realise that they weren't two different things. It was just the same thing. But And that the compartments and the labels that it had all been given were just a lot of bollocks, really. What were you teaching in schools? I couldn't get on an art teaching place. I've done my degree... And I only and I, I was wanting to become a professional designer illustrator, but I had two kids and I thought, shit, I'm gonna need to make money. So I thought I'll do part-time teaching work. But I couldn't get a, on a degree, a PGCE course for teaching art in my area of the Northeast at that time. Yeah. All I could get on was a design technology placement. So I thought, all right, I'll just do that and it gets me the qualification. And so I did. I did my PGC in design technology and ended up teaching electronics and woodwork. And I thought, oh, my God, I was learning it as I was as I was learning to become a teacher. I was learning the subject in my NQT. Uh, I just did a year supply teaching maths and I didn't know anything about teaching maths either. And then my first proper job was as a head of art. So I went from teaching a year design technology, then a year teaching maths, and then I was a head of art in a really tough secondary school. Well, that's quite a job. And, oh, it was mind-numbing. It was really tough. And how did that all begin to make sense to the science field was just that I didn't see teaching as teaching a subject or as teaching as a pedagogy, as an approach, if you like, I'm just a kind of teacher. The kind of subject I'm teaching is not that important. Teaching is a process that can be applied to many concepts. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we have obviously, or not a process, a methodology in the sense that, you know, you can apply yeah. agile methodologies in business to lots of different yes. sort of fields, but you have to manipulate it slightly to make it fit the relevant context. So I was very versatile is the word I was looking for as well. So I, I was versatile in my approach and I, and I was always being asked to cover things on the timetable that uh, were kind of mopping up the kind of gaps, really. And so I was always teaching out of sub- subject across my 20 odd years teaching. And I always really enjoyed that. I always really was fascinated. I have an eternal curiosity about learning anything, really. And I was never afraid to be dunked into a subject I didn't know anything about. And so when I came across the science aspect of things, I just embraced it. And more than any of the other subjects I taught, I felt a kind of a kinship with science because it was 
it was back to my son. It was back to how things worked. It was back to understanding nature and why things are the way they are. And that, to me, held a higher status in my curiosity even than art did. But I guess the kind of barrier to why I'm not a scientist is I don't have the knowledge base to become one. And I, I never followed that route. So I don't have that expanded knowledge base in order to answer high-level questions. My view of science and the way I approach technology of all kinds, even though you know I'm approaching from an art point of view, is that there is a scientific method to things, and that is a method of testing things and seeing them fail and learning from them and testing again and learning from them. And I actually find I use that in business, in agile processes, with enterprise technology, and I also work like that as an artist. This sounds to me like where you're coming from in the sense that you're, what you're picking up on is the underlying patterns of approach rather than the actual subject knowledge i'm not sure about that i i, I kind of tend no i tend to fluctuate and uh, i was lucky enough to be at guy's hospital yesterday in the gordon museum working with anatomists on a kind of drawing course and i was just chatting to them at break and the scientists themselves were saying to me knowledge is not as important um, that it's understanding the bigger issues the bigger pictures of the thinking and the processes and i was saying okay okay Okay, but we were looking at femur bone, mm. and the mm. the anatomists knew what the ridges were in that bone, and they knew what they were for, and they knew what they were called, and I, and they started exposing all of the terminology for that. And I said, you see, that is what I don't have, that knowledge to understand that, and and it's something you kind of, I think you forget, you kind of know it. And it's drawing on that deep knowledge base to be able to make judgments and decisions. The difference between data and information, isn't it? In that you've got all that data of what things are called, and you know the ridges on the bone, etc., are all called X, Y, and Z, and this is you know the pattern of construction, etc. Yeah. That to me is data. But the, the higher level process that the doctors were talking about to me would sound like the information that you then extract from yes. the data and the insight. Yes, because I have thought very, very long and hard about how and where can art add val value to kind of science. And I think this might be one of the areas. It's, it's, it's about that holistic, practical application. It's the thinking, the kind of syn synthesis of thought and application, which I think artists can add something to, to that field. sorts of things do you think artists physically can do as part of a scientific process and working with scientists? One big area of the book that I, I, I've always thought I'd like to delve more deeply into is the idea is visualisation and I think it's something that some people take for granted and, and a lot of people don't really fully understand or appreciate. Some people have the ability to form a picture in their mind of what they're thinking about. And I, I don't mean a literal picture, but they can analyse the sequence of events. So a really good scientist, for example, could like Nikola Tesla, for example, he's the classic guy about this. And he said... I 
I can sit in a room and I can think of an experiment and I can run that experiment in my mind through all the sequences and I can tell you where it's going to fail and why it's going to fail and then I can redesign it and I can do it all without getting out, out of my chair. And the best thinkers, the best scientists can, can do that quite easily. The best artists can. And we don't teach that, or rather we do, but we don't teach it for, for formally. We only teach it indirectly. So in maths, you might teach it in the way of predicting the next number in a sequence. With science, you might ask the students to, you might show them part of an experiment and say, what do you think would happen next? We teach it indirectly, but we could teach it di more directly, more specifically, by giving people artistic, creative exercises where they have to think sequentially or they have to design and they have to draw. So if I'm going to design a handle for a door to visualise who the users of that door are going to be, what if that door handle is in a room for disabled people? We can give people exercises, stimulating exercises that will develop their ability to visualise. I love this idea of inventing mad machines and, and I think all children respond to that and there's a great book on this called The Little Inventor's Handbook. It's just this idea of getting children to think of the impossible. And so in my book, there's a cloud catcher. So one of the exercises is to invent a machine that could catch clouds and move them to a new location. They're given a page full of materials like, you know, rods and sticks and wire. It's, it's all mechanical. And so the children have to build a mechanical device. And I'm saying to them, so how would you build a tower that would be tall enough to reach the kind of clouds? And, and so it's kind of all that physical thinking where they have to spatially construct things. And, and that is, I think, how we build imagination and, and where we build it through. And I, w I was just kind of wanting to channel it more and, and make it more accessible for non-specialists and uh, kind of compartmentalise it a little bit further. Make it more tangible. Moving from secondary to primary, I suddenly became very aware of how, of how efficient and streamlined their teaching is, that they tend not to focus purely on a subject, I mean, outside of English and maths. They'll teach a kind of topic approach and they'll weave all of the subjects into that theme. And it's very efficient and it's very, it's very neatly done. So I think primary schools could pick something like that up very easily. But secondary, I think, suffers from domains. It suffers from this rigid walls between subjects. And, and I kind of, I, I do understand why that is. And I understand why it's, why it's needed. But I also understand why it's not needed and it's destructive. Sort of in the, in the same boat, in the sense that I know that I have a huge amount of knowledge on which I build my own work which has been gained by hard domain-led, you know, domain-controlled study. Yet at the same yeah. time, I know that creatively I am much better if I start to jump across the domains and I actually start to look at it from the point of view of what I'm actually, 
what am I trying to say rather than what am I trying to do? One of the biggest criticisms of education at the moment and of creativity in education at the moment is that a lot of the more traditionally led ed educators are saying that knowledge and skills are not domain transferable. So they're saying you can't use the domain knowledge you have in science to inform your practice as a historian, for example. And my argument is, no, you can't transfer the knowledge, but you can transfer your approach to using that so that creativity, is, for me, is a series of processes. It's a series of ways of solving a problem or doing something. And you can transfer that. And as a creative person who's used to taking things and looking at it from an alternative viewpoints, from being from being able to say that I can draw a, a chair from multiple angles and what is the notion of a chair and how can we reinterpret that chair, that type of thinking can be applied to a maths problem and a science problem, and a historical problem. And that's the essence of the book. The essence of the book is saying that although we can't transfer domain knowledge, we can transfer critical approaches and creative approaches. One of the very first things I did with computer art, you know, 28 years ago or whatever, was I animated a figure, and I used mathematical right. and physics knowledge specifically to try and make the figure walk more realistically. And my knowledge of anatomy from art classes, funnily enough, also fed into that. And I'm finding that those mm. things are like that. And I wonder if domain knowledge, and these are all questions, because every time I say something like that, I start to argue with myself. But I think what you've just said there is classic creative artistic approach. It's, it's that self-doubt, it's that questioning, it's that analysis when i see leaders in society or i meet people who are you know head of a corporation or people who are go-getters if you like they just have this kind of a sociopathic certainty about their opinions and their that they don't doubt themselves and they don't have that questioning they make a decision and they just go with it and that's it and i just think whoa i couldn't imagine what that must be like that always questioning mentality and approach is, I think, is what is what makes me the artist that I actually am, the creative person that, that I am. But you see, I'd also say that makes good scientists good scientists. It's the same thing, isn't it? A scientist isn't fact and knowledge. A scientist is a summary of conclusions drawn from continual testing and proving. But even in science, and I think especially in science, it's very apparent that there are, are very clear camps of approach so that there is it within science uh, traditional knowledge, tight domain knowledge-led scientists and there are cre more creative. So I think there are divisions there very strongly. In my work as a consultant going into schools and, and school departments and finding out what, usually you're only going to a school that's got what it perceived problems are. But even when I go into very successful schools, in it, successful in inverted commas, where they're getting very high exam results, you often find that getting that through a mechanised system of approach 
with a very rigid, strong approach to, okay, we're going to learn this type of drawing in this stage of your life, and those that can do it will go on to do this, and those that won't. Do you know what I mean? And is this, yeah. and, and there's so many artistic people, or you can see very creative people falling out of the art system. And I would say now that if I was at school doing art, I wouldn't take it for G for GCSE level. I would say that without any doubt, I would not study art to GCSE level or A level because I would hate it with every ounce of my breath. It's all about the process now. It's 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 or in rather in too many departments. It's too much about having a good sketchbook that's full of beautifully aching pages that has got beautifully handwritten notes and a gorgeously perfect finished product. And my sketchbooks were a hideous, scruffy mess. I'm not a neat handwriter. And if you'd looked at my process, it would be the shortest amount of thinking I need to do before I, I wanted to get on and do it. So I would have an idea, and I'd do most of that process would be in my head. It would be the Tesla approach. And and I would just play it out and think, mm, I'm going to do this. And then I would do it, and I'd think, oh, no, that's wrong. So I'd try and do it again. And you get a good GCSE in art these days by having good process, not necessarily by having a good thought. I set up a school tomorrow I would have an art department only as a sort of coordination department because I would be having artists working with computer programming and artists working with social scientists yeah. and data and artists working with this and that and it means also those people who teach those domains having to seed control and allow other people into that area and radically change it I guess and I guess that that's when yeah. you're sort of hitting the wall that is the problem that not enough science teachers understand art and not enough art teachers understand science and technology. I think it's part of the problem, but for me the big problem is the accountability of the school to its GCSE results and progress eight scores. And it's the simple fact that a good department is not one that creates independent creative thinkers it's one that gets the highest exam results and those are two totally different things and so you can get departments that are very successful it's very superficial i wouldn't even call it art it's more illustration really and i don't think a lot of children any children even up to A-level, understand the difference between art and illustration. And it's a profound difference between the two and something that I'm so conscious that I'm not an artist. I'm an illustrator slash designer. And when I, as yesterday, I will spend time with fine artists, I'm blown away by their, their methods of thinking because they're totally different to mine. I've got into trouble at conferences by calling designer stylists an artist says what am i trying to yeah. say not what am i trying to do and i wonder about how you get that into science and technology in the school because also there's a big debate clearly about ethics of science and ethics of technology should we do this you know with things like artificial intelligence and therefore yeah. it's more about it's the same question isn't it what am i trying to actually do here when i make this 
whether that's science, technology or art, you ask the same question. When I make an artificially intelligent system, what am I actually trying to do? Create life? I think one of the things that's going to influence that profoundly is, is that I think there's already beginning to be a kind of a kickback against technology in that I think people are realizing that the humanity of themselves is being eaten up by it. There's already a rise of craft of people wanting to make things again with their hands and to move away from computing to to doing everything on a PC. I would love to see us embed or rather blend future technologies with what it means to be human more. I was just going to say that design technology, I think, epitomizes where thinking in, in schools has gone. When I was at school, I left school in 1979, and there was a woodwork department, a technical drawing department, and a metalwork department. And children learned physical skills of those disciplines. Now, if you were to go into a design technology department, you would find pretty much the major emphasis is on designing and it's CAD CAM and it's computers and the physical making aspect of it is minimal. Even now to the point where design technology as subject is disappearing, 47% drop in GCSE numbers in the last 12 months for design technology. It's crashing because it's expensive and schools are saying we need to make codes. What's expensive? Get rid of that. Why do we need design? You're like, what? Everything you're looking at has been designed. Are, are you crazy? But that's what's happening. That's what's happening now. And I just think we've lost that art of children making things with their hands. And I, and I think as much as I love 3D printing and I love the technology, it has to also, we mustn't forget to teach children how to make things with their hands and then how computers do it. So that was Richard F. Adams and Paul Carney. If you want to find out more about Paul and dig a little deeper, why not check out his book? Again, it was Drawing for Science, Invention and Discovery, Even If You Can't Draw. Also, Paul had a little more to add about why he wrote the book. My mission, I guess, through the book was to try and bring creativity, just to try and get it on the menu, not even the table. There's a powerful rise under this government of the traditional forms of approaches to education, and they have attacked creativity in schools as being secondary and unteachable. And my mission through the book was to say, whoa, we can teach creativity. We can understand how creativity works in your subject area. 
So how does new knowledge form in history? How does new knowledge form in geography? And understand the mechanisms by which new information comes about. Just see if you can all understand it. I'd love to have the time to work across different subject domains and, and work on that issue. The name of the book is Drawing for Science, Invention and Discovery, Even If You Can't Draw. And it's by Paul Carney, and it's on Loughborough Design Press. You can get it through the Loughborough Design Press website or through paulcarneyarts.com. And you can find me on Twitter at paulcarneyarts with an S at the end of it. Thanks again to Paul and to Richard for being part of this episode. And thank you too for listening. Let me know if you have any thoughts about this subject or any others that we've talked about on our technique episodes. We're on Twitter, and if you don't know, our handle is at Technique UK. That's all one word. That's all we have time for in this episode, but join us again next month for another podcast. This was, of course, episode 32, so we have a great back catalogue that you can listen to straight away. Whatever platform you're listening to should be able to guide you to that. Plus, make sure that you subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. So, I'll speak to you in a month's time, but in the meantime, take very good care of yourselves. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.